Well, good morning. Good to see you. What? All right. Good. Yeah, today is our uh, fourth and final Sunday uh, into our series on apologetics. And it's with some excitement and also with a little sadness that I recognize that this is the final installment into this equipping series uh, that we've had over the last several weeks. This series uh, was intended to help all of us to be better prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have and to be able to do so with gentleness and respect, as per 1 Peter 3.15. Well, in our last uh, three weeks together, and by the way, if you've missed any of the last three weeks, I would encourage you to go to the website. Uh, the sermons are recorded there. There's copies of my teaching notes and of the PowerPoints we're going through. All those resources are at the website. If you ever want to visit that again or take your children through it, etc. cetera. Uh, but if you go back through the prior three weeks, you'll discover we've spent a fair bit of time working through the credibility of the New Testament. Three of our four weeks were spent on this subject. Why? Well, because if you're talking to someone about Jesus Christ, it's pretty hard to make your case if the person you're speaking with won't allow you to enter this book into evidence. If they say, yeah, I don't really trust that book that you're looking at. I think it's been corrupted over 2,000 years of textual transmission. Or I'm not sure those guys that wrote down the sayings and doings of Jesus, I'm not sure they got it right. I, maybe they just made up stories about this guy. Pretty hard to make your case for Christ if they don't trust the document that you're working from. And that's why we spent the last three weeks taking a look at the credibility of the New Testament. Um, we're gonna move forward from that today, however, and we're gonna look at the person of Jesus Christ. We spend time in the New Testament because it winds us up at this doorstep. It takes us to a full encounter with Jesus Christ, and that's where we're gonna spend our time this morning. I want to acknowledge uh, as we begin today what I believe to be probably the most offensive claim of the gospel. I think the single most offensive claim of the gospel is that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And if you're a, a newcomer, if you're someone who's here and you had, you're not sure what this Christianity thing is about, you may hear Christians say from time to time, not that Jesus is a way to salvation. You might hear them say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And in our pluralistic society that puts things like this on their license plate, that clearly values things like tolerance and diversity and acceptance, these things are valued above all things else. Uh, even the notion that Jesus is the only way to salvation, uh, can I just say that it's an offensive claim? In fact, I'd say it's offensive in the highest degree. Why? We live in a very pluralistic culture. Pluralism used to mean, religious pluralism used to mean that all religions were to be equally tolerated. It doesn't mean that anymore. Uh, pluralism today is understood as all religions are considered to be equally true equally valid paths to God. Uh, all roads lead to Rome. Any road will do, right? Are all religions equally true and equally valued or equally right? That seems to be the mindset of our culture today. 
And it's interesting that if you're not tolerant, if you don't think any old religion will do, then you're sort of a social outcast. Um, this cartoon sort of shows a man who says, I say there is no God. You know, and he's celebrated for being a free thinker and being courageous. But then when a person who has a cross around his neck says, I think there is a God, he's shouted down as being intolerant and narrow-minded and so forth. It's interesting that in this tolerance movement that Christians seem to be not tolerated. Uh, there's uh, an interesting irony in that. Um, I also want to note that uh, in our current age, this pluralistic ideal, we even find it sometimes within the religious circles. Uh, I met, uh, I didn't meet, I encountered the writings of a rabbi, a man named Shumli Botich. And he says this, I am absolutely against any religion that says that one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. How's that for an emotionally charged word? It's a way of saying that we are closer to God than you are, and that's what leads to hatred. So uh, even sometimes among the religious, you find an embracing of a pluralistic mindset. But I wanna start a time this morning by just exposing a fundamental flaw in religious pluralism. Again, pluralism meaning that all religions are equally true. They're all equally valid paths to God. And can I just tell you that it, the fundamental flaw in pluralism is that religions don't all teach the same thing. In fact, many religions teach completely contradictory things. Now, just as an example, I brought my Quran here this morning. The Quran teaches that Jesus did not die on a cross. And according to the Quran, Jesus did not claim to be the son of God. But according to the Bible, he did die on a cross and he did claim to be the son of God. Both can't be right. Do you agree? According to the law of non-contradiction, two opposite things cannot both be true at the same time. If we look at the Old Testament, right, Jesus, uh, it was Jesus the promised Messiah that the Old Testament predicted. Well, if he was, then the Christians have it right. If he wasn't, then the Jews have it right. But can we agree that everybody here isn't right? Somebody has to be objectively wrong because they teach mutually exclusive and contradictory things. So all roads can't lead to Rome, my friends. Not all religions are equally valid paths to God because they make historical claims. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Now, every now and then you'll come across someone that says, well, Mike, your religion's true for you, but my religion's true for me. That's my favorite. <laughs> right? Try living out that worldview and see how that works out for you. In fact, do that on your next tax return, okay? Picture yourself next April, you're walking into your accountant's office and he, you give him your documentation and your accountant says, okay, you made this much money last year, therefore you owe this much tax. And you say, well, Mr. CPA, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. What are they gonna say to you? Well, they're gonna look at you like you're a moron because that is a moronic statement. And they're gonna say, you owe this much to the IRS, do with it what you will. If you choose to not pay it, then enjoy your audit. Why? Because there's a very clear definition of exactly what is owed on a tax return. Okay, truth is not relative, my friends. It never has been and it never will be despite the fact that our society wants to make truth relative at this time. Okay, now... Let's move forward here into our content for today. The first topic we're gonna to address is 
what did Jesus say about himself? Did Jesus really claim to be the only way to salvation? Does the New Testament actually teach this? Well, let's dive into that. The first verse we look at is red letter words. What I mean by that is this is Jesus speaking in the first person. And in John 14, six, John says, I am the way, or sorry, Jesus says about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. What does Peter say? This is one of Jesus' disciples. Peter says, he, referring to Jesus, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the cornerstone. Now listen to this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Those are Peter's words. What does John have to say about this? John says, whoever denies the son does not have the father. The one who confesses the son has the father also. And lastly, Paul, who authored most of the New Testament, Paul says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Did Jesus teach that he was the only way to heaven, the only means of salvation? Yes, he did. Did his disciples think similarly and teach similarly? Yes, they did. They all appeared to be equally narrow in their view. So what's with that? Well, as we look into this this morning, I want you to realize that Jesus occupies a different seat in his relationship to Christianity than other religious founders occupy in relationship to the religions that they brought forth. I'm just giving an example of this. Uh, Mohammed brought forth the Quran. This was written between 610 and 632 AD. And Muhammad is giving a moral instruction with the Quran. He's saying, this is how you are to live. Book of Mormon, similarly. Uh, Hindu Vedas, similarly. The founders of religions typically say, this is what you are to do, and they sort of point the way. Right? Buddha brought forth the four noble truths and the eightfold path. These are the things that you are to do. These religious teachers, these religious founders, they point the way. But Jesus said, I am the way. And that's different. You see, the central issue of Christianity is not Jesus' moral teaching, which is what other religious leaders, how they relate to their teachings. Jesus occupies a different seat. And Jesus says himself that it's the decision that you make about him, his identity, that will determine where you will spend eternity. In fact, in John 8, Jesus himself says, unless you believe I am he, you shall die in your sins. Guys, it's the decision that you make about Jesus' identity, not his moral teaching, that will determine where you will spend eternity. So what's the deal with Jesus' identity? We're gonna go there next. Now, if someone was to ask you the question, who is Jesus? I was 21 years old when I became a Christian and I met a man playing basketball and he sat me down at a cafeteria at the University of Calgary at 21 years of age and I can still remember that encounter. And I was trying to think back as I was thinking through this, what would I have said to be true about Jesus prior to that coffee? Um, I'd never gone to church growing up. I'd been in church twice to see two different cousins get married. I'd never read the Bible. No one had ever shared Jesus with me. So I had a very, I don't know, street view of, of Jesus. And if someone had said, Mike, what do you know to be true about Jesus? I might have said, oh, he's a, he's a, he was a good teacher, right? He was a moral guy, right? He was kind to the poor. 
just sort of the, the normal street level knowledge that anyone probably would have about Jesus. But what's interesting when you look at the New Testament, to label Jesus as a good man or as a wise teacher or someone who's kind to the poor, those descriptions don't fit Jesus at all. In fact, they completely miss the mark. And we're gonna look at why I say that right now. Jesus had a very radical self-understanding. Um, as you get into the different stories in the New Testament, you realize that Jesus thought about himself in a way that's very unique and very unusual. He had an encounter with the Jews in John chapter eight, uh, verse 58. And in this encounter, the Jews are talking to Jesus and the Jews are sort of saying that we're descendants of Abraham and we're proud of this. And Jesus responds to them, that, yeah, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And the Jews look at him, Abraham, how do you know our father Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus responds to the Jews in a very strange way. He says, believe me, very truly I, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Kind of a strange, almost cryptic response. But we know that the Jews understood what Jesus was saying because as soon as he said this, they bent down to pick up rocks to kill him. What was Jesus saying? Well, to understand his sort of cryptic response, we've got to go back into the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, there's a man named Moses who has an encounter with a burning bush. And God is revealing himself to Moses in this burning bush. And in this exchange between God and Moses, God kind of give, gives Moses a quest. And he says, you are to go to, into Egypt to, to go to Pharaoh and to, and to have him uh, free the Hebrews. And Moses says, okay, uh, who shall I say has sent me? And the burning bush's response is, I am. I am. It's God's divine personal name for himself. And in this exchange with the Jews, Jesus is claiming God's personal name for himself. And we know unmistakably that the Jews understood what he was saying, again, because they picked up stones to kill him. Why? Jesus was claiming equality with God. We see another story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter two, verse five. Jesus walks by a paralytic man and says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the onlookers hear this and say, your sins are forgiven? Who can forgive sins but God alone, you turkey? And Jesus says, which is harder, to tell a man his sins are forgiven or to heal him? And so to prove that his claim to forgive sins wasn't some empty thing, he healed the man. The guy picks up his mat and walks out of the building. Jesus claimed to forgive sins. This is a divine prerogative. The onlookers were right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus claimed to forgive sins. And then in Jesus' trial, uh, when he's before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in Mark chapter 14, Caiaphas is grilling Jesus. He's parading false witnesses across the, the stand to try to get some accusation to stick against Jesus, and he's failing. He can't do it. And Caiaphas finally says, enough of this. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Look at Jesus' response. I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is quoting verbatim Daniel chapter seven, which describes the second coming of the Messiah of Israel. We know exactly that Caiaphas understood what he was saying because Caiaphas tore his clothes. He says, enough of this. This man has condemned himself as a blasphemer. Why? Jesus was claiming equality with God. Now, my friends, 
Jesus clearly thought of himself as being equal with God or God's son. That's why it doesn't make sense to say, oh, Jesus was a good teacher. Yeah, Jesus was a good man to the poor. Oh, he was really wise. That doesn't fit because good teachers and wise men, they don't claim to be God. So Jesus fits in a completely different category and we've got to figure out where do we place Jesus. So here's how this is going to go. There's three possibilities for Jesus. He either was who he said he was. He either was and is God or he wasn't, okay? If he wasn't, he either knew he wasn't or he didn't know that he wasn't. So there's a total of three possibilities we're gonna look at this morning. The first possibility is that Jesus thought of himself as God, but he wasn't God and he knew that he wasn't. What do we call the person that says something about themselves that, we, that they know to be wrong? What do you call that person? Liar. That's a liar, right? Was Jesus a liar? Right? A liar would mean he was claiming things to be true about himself, but he was not being truthful. Well, the problem with this conclusion is that in the New Testament, we see that Jesus had impeccable character. In fact, the people that walked with Jesus and knew him best said this about him. Peter said of Jesus that he was a lamb without spot or blemish. Peter walked with Jesus for three years, day in, day out, ministering with him, traveling with him, literally every day for three years. And after that period of time, he reached this conclusion. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. How many of your close friends could say that about you? Probably not many. Paul said Jesus was a man who knew no sin, uh, when one of Jesus' accusers uh, had uh, gotten his face, Jesus says, hey, which one of you convicts me of sin? At Jesus' trial, I mentioned a moment ago that there was a whole host of uh, false witnesses that were paraded across the witness stand, but none of them could make any accusation stick. And then finally, Caiaphas hands Jesus over to Pilate, the Roman uh, procurator, uh, to sentence Jesus. And Pilate interviews Jesus and says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. So he gives him back to Caiaphas. That exchange going back happens three times. And Pilate says, I got nothing on this guy. Guys, how can we determine that Jesus was a liar when there's nothing in the historical record that would suggest that that claim holds water? Jesus was not a liar. He was a man who showed impeccable character. So what's the second possibility? Well, the second possibility is that Jesus claimed to be equal with God, but he was wrong, and he didn't know he was wrong. All right, so let's try this one on for size just for a second. Let's say I go home from church today, and my next-door neighbor, Walter, comes over and rings my doorbell. Ding dong. Hey, Walter, how are you? Mike, I am living water. If you drink from me, you will never thirst again. Okay? Walter, you want to come in for a little bit? Sure. Mike, I forgive your sins. Excellent. Come on, sit down over here. Mike, I am the preexistent one. Before Abraham was born, I am. And he looks at me and says, Mike, I am the bread of life. If you eat from me, you will never hunger. Guys, what am I going to think about Walter? Cuckoo. Right? Walter, come on in. I can see it's been a hard morning for you. Let's grab, let's grab you a cup of coffee, maybe, maybe some medication. We'll, we'll invite your wife to come over and pick you up. I'm not sure what's going on, but we'll, we'll take care of this for you. Was that Jesus? And by the way, what do we call this person? 
Crazy, one fry short of a happy meal. This guy is a lunatic, okay? Was Jesus a lunatic in need of a padded cell? Well, you need to understand when you look at the historical record, this is not how people responded to Jesus. People were transfixed by this guy's words. He did not speak the words of a madman. In fact, they were overwhelmed by the power of what he had to say, and people in his day took him seriously. Why? Because they saw him doing things that were consistent with his claims. My friends, nobody thought that Jesus was a madman. That doesn't fit the historical record either. So if he, if he thought he was God, is it accurate to think that he was wrong and he was lying about it? No. If he thought he was God and he was wrong about it, but he didn't know about it, if that theory doesn't fit, that's door number two. What's door number three? Door number three is that he was right. Door number three is that he was who he said he was. This is the necessary third and final option for how we think about Jesus, that he was the Lord of life. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. Now the claim to be Lord, the claim to be God's son and co-equal with God, that is a massive claim, right? And extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So how did Jesus back up this claim to be Lord? Well, in the eyewitness accounts, we find three very distinct lines of reasoning. Uh, we find that, first of all, he offered numerous examples that he was able to affect nature. He performed nature miracles in abundance. This guy walked on water. This guy turned water into wine. This guy restored sight to the blind. He healed a paralytic Right? He did all kinds of miracles to affirm that he had abilities that no one else did. He even restored people from the grave. He raised the dead to life, including himself. I consider that the grand miracle. When Jesus himself died, he was raised back to life. What's the first line of example or the first line of reasoning to back up his claim to be Lord? He performed numerous miracles that were well attested, by the way, by those who were there. Number two, Jesus lived a life without sin. Not a single imperfection is recorded in his life. Not one time is it known that he sinned. And third and finally, Jesus fulfilled dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of very specific predictions about him that were written hundreds of years before he was born. Attestation through miracles, attestation through a sinless life, attestation through fulfillment of prophecy, right? Did he back up his claim to be Lord? You bet. So why was Jesus a religious exclusivist? Why was Jesus intolerant of other religious views? Why would he say things like, no one can go, come to the Father but through me? Well, to understand that, we have to understand why Jesus came in the first place. And Jesus came because humanity has a problem. All of mankind is conscious of this separation that exists between God and man. We're mindful of a gap that divides us. What is this gap? Guys, God has imprinted on all of us. We spoke about this in week two, but I'll recap it. God has imprinted on all of us this moral law, this very clear sense of right and wrong that has literally been hardwired into us. 
It doesn't matter if you were born in Timbuktu. It doesn't matter if you were born in Tibet. It doesn't matter if you were born in Tijuana or Toronto or Tallahassee. Pick your favorite tea destination. It doesn't matter where you were born. All of us have a very common understanding of this sense of right and wrong, and it has been hardwired into us. That might sound controversial, but I will challenge you to check it out, and if you don't believe it, I will buy you lunch and I'll prove it to you. You can look at the moral writings over thousands of years from civilizations on different corners of the globe, and they are eerily similar in terms of their definition of right and wrong. This moral law is very clearly understood. And C.S. Lewis speaks about this. Again, this is a recap from week two. Lewis says, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way and they cannot really get rid of it. He says, something appears in me as law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. But Lewis goes on to say there's a problem. None of us have upheld this moral law. None of us are actually fulfilling the standard of right and wrong that's been hardwired into us. And Lewis goes on to say this, I'm only calling attention to the fact that this year or this month or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves the kinds of behavior that we expect from other people. All cultures agree in prescribing behaviors which their adherents fail to practice. All men stand under condemnation and this condemnation does not come by alien code of ethics but by their own and men are therefore conscious of guilt. My friend, some people in this world are trying very hard to live a good and pleasing life to God. They're convicted by morality that they feel imprinted on them and they're doing their best to live a life that is pleasing to their maker. This man is one of them. This is a Hindu named Mahatma Gandhi. If you've ever learned about his life, he was very devout, very kind, very gentle, very peaceful, and he loved God. But when you read Gandhi's autobiography, he says this. It is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him whom I know governs my every breath, so who I know governs every breath of my life and whose offspring I am. Get this, I know it is because of the evil passions within me that keep me so far from him, yet I cannot get away from them. I know it is because of the evil passions within me that keep me so far from him yet I cannot get away from them. I take you back to humanity's problem. Guys, as a 21-year-old college student sitting at the University of Calgary, a man named Rod sat me down and he said, do you realize, Mike, that you are far from God right now? I said, yeah, I'm aware. He says, do you realize that the separation between you and God is because of your conduct, because of your choices and your actions? I'm like, yeah, I'm aware of that. Guys, I didn't need to be convinced of this. I knew if had I died that day in that cafeteria, I knew it was going to be a bad day. I looked back on the offenses I had committed in my life and I looked at all the things I had done that I was ashamed of. And I may have wanted to believe that if God examined my conduct and was gonna use that to determine whether or not I'd merit heaven, if he looked at my conduct, I knew I was not gonna have my head held high. Now, I may have wanted to hope that God would grade my, my, uh, my, you know, my actions on a curve. Oh, God, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I may not be Mother Teresa, but I'm not as bad as Hitler. You know, can we somehow make this work, right? But I knew at bottom that if God is truly all-knowing and all-seeing, and he's gonna examine everything I've done in my life, I knew I wouldn't survive that examination. And I knew I was not bound for heaven had I died in that moment. 
And the Bible agrees with this. The Bible says things like, your sins have separated you from your God. It says things like, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says things like, the wages of sin is death. What is humanity's problem? Why are we separated from God? Guys, it's because of sin. Sin is what is separating us from God. It is our conduct, and we're aware of this. But this is where Jesus comes into the equation. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. He literally is the only person who has ever lived that did not break any of God's commands. And if it's our sin that separates us from God and Jesus never sinned, you need to realize that Jesus doesn't actually experience this gap. He doesn't have a divide between himself and God. Now, as you may have heard, this Jesus, he died on a cross some 2,000 years ago. What does that mean? It means an innocent man who knew no wrong was put to death. And you might be saying, well, what does that have to do with me? Guys, Jesus offers you a gift. He functionally offers to stand in the gap for you and to take your sins upon himself. Jesus offers to take your offenses, your wrongdoings, and to cast them upon himself, taking your unrighteousness and claiming it for his own. In doing so, he offers to you his sinless perfection, his righteousness, and he gives that to you as a gift. And in doing so, he can change your status before a holy God. He becomes the vehicle through which you can obtain right standing with God. Your place for his. And I love how the Bible says this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why is Jesus the only way? My friends, it's because Jesus is the only one who has solved the problem of sin. This is the core issue this morning. Why can't Muhammad save you? Why can't Buddha save you? Why can't Confucius save you? Why can't Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, save you? It's because they can't solve the problem of sin. These guys are busy paying for their own sins. They don't have the ability to pay for yours. This isn't intolerance. This isn't bigotry. This isn't hatefulness. This is math. These guys don't have the resources to make the payment to a holy God to clear your debt. Only Jesus has those resources. Through his perfect life, he is the only one who is able to make the payment on your behalf. Period. The end. Guys, by the way, that's why Muhammad's grave is still occupied. That's why Buddha's grave is still occupied. Same for Confucius, same for all the others. Why are they still in the ground? Because the wages of their sin is also death. But my friends, Jesus' grave is empty. Jesus knew no sin, and that's why he is not in the grave. 
One author said it this way. Ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are redeemed. God is still God, the wages of sin is still death, and we are made perfect. I wanna tackle one last objection, and then we'll wrap up our time together today. Every now and then you'll come across someone that will say something like, well, Mike, as long as my good deeds sort of outnumber my bad deeds, that's okay, right? Like God will accept me in that, in that scenario, right? Like as long as I've done enough good stuff in my life. Well, let's talk about this. By the way, we shouldn't be surprised to find this line of thinking. We learned in week two uh, that literally every religion in the world except for one except for Christianity, has a works-based salvation formula. And that's essentially what this is. Someone trying to earn or merit their way to favor with God. But let's see, let's see if this works. Let's see if we can figure out how to make sense of whether or not a works-based salvation uh, is possible. Right? Essentially, there, you can kind of use this as a word picture if you want. Right? If I stack up enough good, will that counterbalance the bad in my life? I will tell you that there's two problems with this line of reasoning. Two. The first is this. How do you know when you've done enough? How will you ever know when you have done enough good in your life to offset the bad deeds that you've committed? How will you ever know when or if the scales balance in your favor? Especially if Jesus is right. When in the Sermon on the Mount, he describes uh, that it's not just your deeds that get counted in this equation. It's also your thoughts. It's also your intentions. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount things like, if a man looks upon a woman lustfully, then he's committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh-oh. If I've got to count the things I didn't do, but I only thought in this equation, I'm a dead man. I'm a goner, because there's no way I could possibly stack up enough good in my life to possibly be able to counterbalance the scales. But there's a second problem, and this is probably even more troubling, and it's this. This type of thinking completely ignores the essence of the way that law works. In any theory of law, you cannot stack up times that you've kept the law to offset times that you didn't keep the law. Now, let me give you an example of this, all right? Let's say Chris is driving home from church today and he's driving down Concord Road and Chris is going 65 miles an hour. Concord Road's a 40 mile an hour zone. And all of a sudden, Chris looks in his rearview mirror and there's a man who's pulling him over, wearing a nice uniform, he's got a shiny badge, all right? Chris rolls down his window, his window and says, what's the problem, officer? Policeman says, you're going a little fast today, weren't you? Well, what do you mean? You're driving 65 in a 40 zone, okay? I need your license and registration. I'm gonna write you up a, a ticket. Whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Mr. Officer, I've driven Concord Road a thousand times before today, a thousand times. And every one of those thousand times, I drove 40 miles an hour or less. What's the police officer gonna say to you? You're going a little quick today. License and registration, please. Why? Guys, you're trying to stack 1,000 good deeds on this side of the law, and the one time you have broken the law, it results in the punishment of the law. Why? It's because the law presumes perfect obedience. It assumes compliance. 
And one infraction of the law brings the whole weight of the law against you. Guys, if the Bible is right and that the wages of sin is death, then at my very first offense, I'm a dead man. My very first sin sealed my fate and I am in need of a savior. But I got good news for you this morning. God is offering you a pardon. God is offering you a pardon this morning on his terms. And you can either accept the pardon that's offered to you through Jesus Christ and go free, or you can reject the pardon and pay for your sins yourself. Totally up to you. Salvation is offered to you and to me and to all of us. Salvation is offered as a free gift. But even a free gift needs to be not only offered, but accepted in order for it to be yours. And I want to put up on the screen the very first Bible verse that was ever quoted to me when I sat down in a cafeteria on February 13th of 1995. And a man said to me, Mike, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. A man looked across the table at me and said, Mike, your sins can be forgiven today. Your rap sheet can be dismissed today, but you need a savior for that to happen, and his name is Jesus Christ. And with tears in my eyes, I bowed and I accepted Christ that day. And it is the best decision that I have ever made in my life. And if you haven't made a decision for Jesus yet in your life, I encourage you to do so this morning. I'm gonna lead you through a prayer right now, and if you wanna make this prayer yours, I encourage you to join me and to receive Jesus as your savior. Heavenly Father, I recognize this morning that I am a sinner. I stand before you as one who is guilty of the many offenses I have committed, and I acknowledge that I am in need of a savior. I hear this morning that your son Jesus has lived a sinless life and that his perfection is made available to me through his substitutionary death on the cross. Lord, I receive you this morning and I ask that you would receive me. I accept the free gift of forgiveness and I ask that you cleanse me of my sins and my wrongdoings. On this day, July 31st, I profess that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. Amen.